Welcome to the Two Solitudes Podcast. Breaking news. Uh, moments before we were about to go live to air, Kevin. Uh, some exciting news, I guess, out of Montreal. Why don't you tell the listeners, uh, which already know this by now because it's a podcast and they're listening to it when they want to. But however, let's pretend they're live. Kevin, what's going on? Philippe is packing his bags. He's leaving today. He wants to be a part of it. He's going to Red Bulls, New York, right? Yep, Harrison, New Jersey, to, to be uh, to be exact. To, to be exact, yes. Um, okay, so the the trade. Uh, uh, well, what is the trade? Give, give us the breakdown exactly. Okay, so the big piece of the trade, the first part of the allocation process with Felipe goes to New York. In return, Montreal gets Ambroise Oyongo, the the, the uh, fullback from the young Cameroon fullback, international Cameroon, and uh, on top of it. 23-year-old, they get Eric Alexander, midfielder, an average of 34 games played per season since 2010, very consistent, not the best of midfielder, but really consistent, he can be uh, a, key, a solid piece going forward, and on top of it, they get allocation money, uh, and an international spot, so uh, really surprised with that. Yeah, the international spot speaks to the addiction to the Canadian teams sometimes have to the international spot, but we'll put that aside for now. I think Eric Alexander in, in some ways will be kind of a replacement for Colin Warner. Um, yes. Sort of that that role that's not too flashy, but it's just going to consistently be out there. So uh, I don't think he's going to there's, I don't think he's going to sell too many uh, jerseys in, in Montreal. But uh, He's a less flashy Justin Mapp in my opinion. He's there. He's going to be reliable. He won't make any too many bad mistakes, but he was not going to make the greatest play either. But without making wave, he's going to consistently help you solidify. He's going to be well placed and just tactically can be useful. So it could be good. Better hairline than Justin Mount? Oh, that's not really hard to beat, Dwayne. But uh, yeah. while you went there, and I don't think either one of us should really talk about her hairline, should we? Yeah, I know. I'm getting there. Damn it. Yeah, yeah, all right. Uh, I'll just I just map was a very good. Play. I thought he was the Impact's best player last year at times. So yeah, I don't know. When he's fit, he's going to be great. He's one of the key pieces still in the midfield for Montreal. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Felipe's time in Montreal uh, before we get too much into this. I mean, the key part for the, the going the other way is the number one spot in the allocation order. Uh, obviously, the Red Bulls are, are, you know, there's rumors that Cahill's going to the Middle East. Henri is gone already, so they really uh, are probably going to bring in a U.S. international as their, their key DP signing this offseason. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's easy to find who Kleshin is probably who we're, we're talking about out there. Uh, we're not really a, an American show, so we're not going to break that down too much. But that's obviously what they're after. Um, I think I'll talk a little bit about the idea of U.S. national team players in Canada in a bit. But uh, um, let's talk about Felipe first. Um, you know, Kevin, so go ahead. Yeah, Felipe in 2012 had a great season. He was one of the top players of 24 under 24. Remember that uh, that series that MLSsoccer.com does every year. He was one of those players. He was a darling of the league. The way he played, he brought a new freshness to the type of play we were seeing in the midfield at a young age. That's two years ago. Since then, it was a little bit downhill. But you have to remember who was the coach of Montreal in 2012. Who was his first coach in North America? The way he brought him, it was... Go ahead, wait. It I was, was going to say it's Jesse Marsh. <laughs> exactly. And now the coach who is now the coach of the Red Bulls. So there's a lot of... I think Jesse Marsh really wanted him. It's the Red Bulls themselves that initiated the talk to get the trade done. And that just tells you 
that they wanted that top spot and they wanted Felipe badly. Yeah. Um, in terms of your memories of Felipe, I mean, I think that he had overall a positive contribution to Montreal, although his, uh, like everyone, he had a bit of a down season last year. Um, what, what would be your personal highlight of Felipe's uh, time in, uh, in Montreal? In 2012, the last, the end of the season, when he really started doing nice goals from his right foot, just a little top of the box, he did a couple of those, curly shot, and it really was surprising for us. It was the first season MLS, and the level of play was more than we were expected to see, and it was surprising to see the technical skills that he had for such a young Brazilian player. And he was one of the first Brazilian that had that type of flair, salsa flair, to a team that we saw in Montreal a couple years ago, and it, that was the imprint that's left on my mind, that joy to play that is known to be a part of the Brazilian soccer. It was great to see that for the first time in Montreal. Yes, that faded away in the last couple of years, but still, uh, the memory of 2012 and dancing for the first time, blooming as a professional player on a big level, big stage, it was fun to see. Yeah, in terms of uh, its early times here, we are talking, we're recording this less than an hour after the trade news broke. Uh, but what were your, what's your idea of what the, the fans' reaction in Montreal is going to be? Is it going to be one of those like, oh, I can't believe they got rid of Felipe? Or is this, is, eh, it was probably time. Is it, well, What do you think that the overall sentiment of the fan is going to be today? Right now, if you're taking social media as the pulse of the fans, both on Facebook and on Twitter. People are saying that they're grateful for Felipe's contribution over the years to the Montreal Impact. He's a founding member of the MLS club of the Montreal Impact, and that will forever be the case. They're grateful for that, but they realize it was time to move on, and they're happy with Oyongo coming. They're, Alexander's been overlooked, being overlooked right now, but with the international spot, we allocation money, and with Oyongo, Oyongo's the type of player, he's, he's a francophone, he can be a star in Montreal if he plays his cards right, the way he can go to the different communities that are exist in Montreal, he can appeal to that. He can be a great presence, first of all, on the fullback. We need that badly. And he has experience for a young player. And for a guy who was came in almost as an unknown at the beginning of last season, took the job starting in late June with the Red Bulls, kept the spot even though the injured players came back, Roy Miller and all those when he kept a spot and Petke fought hard to find him his place to play and he kept on playing. And that tells you a lot for a young player to do that in a big city like New York. So for him to be in Montreal, the fans are really happy about that. And they're it, it's for them it's a win win, but more it seems like a steal. They see the whole the trade as a whole and Montreal won them in their opinion. But we have to remember last year we thought the same thing after uh, Colin Warner was traded. So for now, Montreal is the winner. Well, we'll see going forward. Yeah, and look, I think that often um, fans in, in any city, particularly in the Canadian cities, though, I think overlook the value of that top spot in the allocation order because typically what that means, and for those that don't know, you know, Rule 7428 about, uh, you know, MLS acquisitions, uh, the allocation order is essentially there to um, – it deals with two types of players – but the most prominent of the players that it deals with is returning U.S. international players. Yep. Uh, it, so that's likely what this is for. It also deals with players that were in the league that were sold out of the league with a with a, um, with a profit with a profit uh, when they come back into the league in order to avoid. And we're going to talk about the CPA and it'll, CBA a little bit later on. So we'll get into this stuff in order to avoid betting wars against the teams. Um, they have an order. So basically, Montreal was at the top of that order. 
now they're not. They're now they're, they're wherever New York was. Uh, so if there is a U.S. international returner or a, a former player in MLS that's coming back, which is generally Americans too, uh, they would um, they would then have to go through that order. For uh, you know, Daniel Henry, for instance, would have to go back through this order if he ever were to to return to MLS. Uh, Toronto right. doesn't own his rights anymore because they sold them with the uh, the transfer fee. One um, thing that scares me a little, Dwayne, is I have a feeling Felipe. I was talking about how he bloomed on a big stage. He's the type of player that when pressure is there, he, he thrives on it. Well, at least in 2012 when his great greatest moment was with the club. And now with New York having two teams, with that rivalry becoming, and with the Red Bulls needing some some flair, some, some uh, striking power, some skills on the technical side, oh, Felipe can thrive on that. And I'm afraid that we might regret that trade in the long run. But for now, we'll, we'll see. Yeah, I I think that the Felipe situation is is as much to do with uh, with like I said with that allocation order, but he's kind of the hidden one in there. I wonder, and I looked at briefly at the New York reaction. It's really too early to get a lot of it out there. Yeah, they're um, stuck under like what uh, three centimeters of snow right now. It's dangerous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we were laughing about that this morning. The why do they call the army? Why do they name? Yeah, uh, yeah. I know that. Uh, anyway, we're not going to go there. Um, <laughs> Why do they name their storms down there? It's the 2015 blizzard, man. I know, but they were, they have like a like a hurricane name. Like we, you know what we call that storm that they're having in the American? Uh, it's like a Tuesday in February. Uh, yeah, it's like six months of the year. Yeah, it pretty much. Yeah, it is. Um, uh, in terms of uh, the reaction overall, there was exactly what you said. It seems like there was an awful lot to give up, and I think that maybe Felipe will be uh, the key. But before that trade, Dwayne, last week it was announced that Laurent Sima, a Belgium defender, 27-year-old, is now a defender for the Montreal Impact, a centre-back. He's not a DP, uh, contrary to what we first thought, even though he's that type of level of player. He's not a DP, he's a normal defender, but him, he had his last game for his club, the Standard de Liège, uh, last Sunday. He scored a goal on his uh, away game, the last game... He was going to play in front of his supporters. Actually, it was a home game. But he scored a goal on his last game with the club. He's a legend now for this club. He was going to become the captain next year. If it wasn't for circumstances that are outside of football, sometimes life can help uh, negotiation or can help a move be made. Unfortunately, it was for a reason that it's it's unfortunate, but it's because Laurent Simon's daughter is autistic. And in Belgium, where he was, there were not the treatment and the type of care and the type of knowledge uh, surrounding autism that are available in Montreal and Canada to this day. So he wanted to make the move to help his daughter uh, grow up and to have a better uh, environment surrounding her to help her uh, become a better person with, uh, autism, with autism. So with that move now, the Montreal Impact have, back in Sumara a couple of weeks ago, Laurent Simon and Oyongo in the defense. Even though I'm not sold on Sumaya Dwayne, I still think he's a reckless player and he's going to have to prove himself and continue to be a more consistent player don't get sent off as often with Montreal. But that defense just changed uh, from one of the worst in the league last year to now it could be one of the best. Yeah, yeah it all depends on how well they, they adapt and certainly... Uh... Uh, Simon's story there is it, it's interesting and, and something I think we're going to hear a lot of uh, with his daughter and certainly that is uh, something that we sometimes overlook in terms of the, the outside the field uh, stuff in terms of how it attracts players to North America. Uh, quality of life uh, matters uh, more than salary sometimes and I think that we overlook that 
Um, and they all like, speak French too. The whole defense speaks French. So that communication wise, it, it's one of the first time we've seen this MLS a French defense totally, and that can be useful in games where you're trying to communicate without the other team understanding yourself. It might seem silly, but on the long run, it could be really something different. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, any of us that have played in a men's league knows that you're going to run into the odd team that speaks a different language universally than you, and it it adds an element. They're calling plays out, and you have no clue. Like, I mean, if you play a men's league in a major center, center anywhere in North America, there's probably a team that represents a certain community, right? Yep. So this is a on an MLS scale. It's it's kind of an interesting thing that I hadn't thought of. Um, you know, as I said a minute ago, and this kind of segues into to Toronto's uh, major move uh, since we last spoke. Um, you know. The adaption, how quickly uh, discovery signings adapt, is especially on the back end where there's just different refereeing, different sort of physicality. Um, it, it matters, and and I think that uh, with Montreal and with Toronto this year, there is a a key to that. If they have brought in the right players that can adapt adapt quickly, and of course I'm talking about uh, Damien uh, Parkis uh, for for TFC, if they brought in a player that can adapt quickly, then things look good, but you just don't know. And that would be the major question, at least from a Toronto perspective to me next year, is how quickly that player fits in, whether he's the right signing. We've had other center backs come in that have been well-respected, that have come from bigger leagues, that have completely bombed in this city before. So most fans here are taking a wait-and-see approach. Um, I would take it that probably in Montreal it would be the same thing, right? Absolutely, but just the fact that they're I've talked about two shows ago, and even I think last week how Montreal needs to go to the francophone file of players to get them into an environment where they can probably adapt quicker than they would in another team in Major League Soccer. They just did that a week after I said it. So, of course, I had no uh, influence on the move, but it's great that it finally used that. And I think that would help the players maybe acclimatize quicker to the environment, and that means probably be better on the pitch sooner. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and as I said at the time when we were talking about that, there there certainly is an absolute ready-made um, attraction for Montreal that's completely unique with an MLS based on the language and the culture there. So uh, certainly there's something that you would hope that they would try to uh, uh, to go after more often. I, Kevin, on that note, let's move on real quickly and wrap up sort of the, the Canadian player moves before we go to our second segment. Um, Kyle Becker, uh, he has been moved on for a second-round draft pick. It was a case, I think, that it square peg, round hole in a lot of ways. I, you know, We used to get messages from Becker's people uh, that were very upset with sort of his usage a lot. He never really got a – you know, it's a hard shot. to say. Yeah, he didn't get a first shot. You know, I, I, I hesitate to say that, though, because he was here for two years, and, and sometimes his play on the pitch didn't fully – say that he should have been here for too long, two yeah. years. But he didn't get enough starting opportunity. Um, it is interesting that Dallas, and, and people have always looked down their nose a, a while back that when they protected Becker in the expansion draft, a lot of people questioned, suggested that TFC was lying when they said there was outside interest in him. Um, obviously, Dallas values enough about his skill set that they are willing to give up an international spot or at least a perspective of inner perception of Possibility is what I'm trying to say of an international spot uh, for for Becker. Look what they did with Breck Shea. Uh, Kyle Becker, for some reason, yes, physically reminds me of Breck Shea, but on the field as well. And look at Dallas, what they did with Breck Shea. Ever since Breck Shea left Dallas, he isn't the same player. We'll see now with Orlando. But uh, Kyle Becker could be the new Breck Shea in Dallas. Well, there you go. Hopefully for the Canadian national team that that, that is a workout there. Uh, Toronto has replaced him with Jay Chapman, basically. Uh, Jay Chapman 
young Canadian plays the same position. Uh, that's kind of the the like for like there that uh, that made him expendable. So uh, so we we wish Kyle luck luck and he has moved on to Dallas. Uh, the other well, a minor one, one thought. Sorry, Dwayne. One thought on Becker. If you're going back to the show we did last at the end of the week for the USL Toronto Two show, where mm-hmm. uh, Tim Bespacheco talks about uh, Becker, and he. There was hints that the move was going to happen, but he talks about how Becker was probably two years too early. If Becker would have been drafted this year with Toronto or a homegrown a year ago, he would have had a place to play and get better in the USL Pro team and eventually made his way to MLS with the same club. He's probably just a couple years too early in Toronto. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I asked Bezvichenko uh, if you can listen to that interview uh, from last week, uh, whether having the USL pro team coming in affected how he, he approached the draft and he said absolutely 100% um, and that he was sort of looking at 2017 when he was drafting these players rather than run the current year right now so that will uh, make a difference no doubt the other minor move uh, that was made um, was Eric uh, Zavaleta not uh, not, Zavaleta. Pablo. not Pablo <laughs> no not Pablo Zavaleta that would be a DP move I would think but uh, we would have laid in with that just because of you probably uh, <laughs> that would have been the case that kind of fullback does not exist in MLS right now. So that's uh, let's just leave that well off. And I actually got a lot of that that day when people were like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. Add like a pencil and a B in there. Anyway, no. Um, it's Zaba, not Zaba. Uh, he's the nephew of Greg Vanny. That's going to get some people questioning. But I think this is a case, and, and I'm going to bring Zavaleta back up again when we talk about the CBA because he actually was um, – he was Seattle's property. He was a first-round draft pick of the Sounders. Never really broke in there. Uh, was loaned to Chivas last year uh, to, to Chivas uh, USA, of course, not uh, Guadalajara, the one that still exists, uh, where he played a regular role with them, uh, one of the worst teams in the league. So that's that's put that in perspective. He uh, was not had, didn't have his contract renewed this year, and uh, he, that likely is a case of. Uh, I don't know whether he was a GA off the top of my head or not, but uh, often you'll see that when a when a draft pick that never really worked out uh, goes to his first gets to the first uh, time that he has to have his contract renewed. Sometimes the clubs uh, they drop them at that point because the money they were on, and that's one of the reasons why um, MLS is trying to get the draft pick contracts in order while you're seeing less GAs and that is because they used to call them the GA time bomb where you have a player that's somewhat useful but he's being paid way above what his performance is and then he gets to the end of this contract and he's been living at $150,000 a year kind of lifestyle and then you know to come back for 40000 is almost impossible for both the player but anyway um he is likely a depth, uh, depth defending signing they're talking about him he's played a bit at the fullback uh, recently but they they think he's a center back um, they view him behind uh, uh, Parkis and uh, and Caldwell are the starters. So you look at uh, Hagland and and Zavaleta as your as your next two pairing there. So you have four guys. Um, he'll probably get some USL uh, pro uh, minutes as well. But I think he's primarily there to be the fourth, the third or the fourth center back uh, within uh, TFC setup. But he's also a player that can kind of rotate out to the to the fullback position if there's an injury as well. So he's kind of useful that way. Um, but nothing really to get to. Um, too too excited about, uh, but uh, certainly um, another addition to the back line. I think TFC is probably close to done now. Uh, after a rapid fire of three weeks or so, I don't expect that you'll see a lot more moves uh, coming in. There's a possibility I'm hearing of uh, another homegrown signing maybe coming in. Um, 
I haven't heard a name 100%. Uh, Mark Anthony Kale would be my guess based on his play in USL Pro last year down the stretch, but uh, he's a wing player for those that don't know. Just a width option. I think he'd be coming in for USL Pro more likely, but they might have a look at him for the full team. Uh, other than that, I don't expect any more major additions. TFC, as you see it today, is probably what TFC is uh, going to be. I guess the only other um, thing to talk about on the TFC front is whether uh, Javinko comes in uh, earlier or not. Um, that's up in the air. I think that they're working on it on the, the Juve side of things, but uh, maybe by next week we'll have to talk a bit, a bit more about that more. But uh, for now, not much. And the Whitecaps, Kevin? Well, I guess the Whitecaps, we're looking at you now, people. We're looking at you, Vancouver. Montreal did a big trade, trying to change what needed to be done. Still waiting for a striker or a DP striker. Who knows? But Vancouver, what have they... Have they I heard they made a signing. A homegrown sign, yeah. Uh, he, uh, one, of their, one of their academy kids, they've signed him to a homegrown. Uh, he's, you know, USL pro in mind. Ben, uh, yeah. ben McKendry is his name. Um, there's an article up on CSN like uh, Mike, Mike McCall, if you want to read it. Um, you know... I'm glad to see the Whitecaps giving their homegrown signings anyway. Let's hope they get some minutes and especially hope they get some minutes in USL Pro, but I'm not going to break that down much more than that. Uh, I think that the Whitecaps are pretty confident with what they have and are probably going to go in pretty stable to where they have. They made a defender signing last week too, so shouldn't overlook that. But uh, let's take a break, Kevin. We'll come back. We're going to break down the CBA. Uh, players are talking about the, they're using the S word, Kevin. Ooh, that can't be good. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Sucker Podcast with Kevin Laramie and Dwayne Rollins. You can reach the guys on Twitter at 24th Minute and at Kevin Laramie. Or both of them at Two Solitudes Pod. Reach the guys on email. Two Solitudes Podcast at gmail.com. But especially subscribe on Stitcher Radio. Now back to the show. And welcome back. Uh, Kevin. Have you figured out yet exactly how we're going to approach this uh, podcast uh, during a two-month-long strike? Uh, yes, we'll talk about how there's a strike and players are not playing and how – well, I'll, I'll, you'll be – you're the CBA expert, so I'll ask you a question about how eventually they're going to get signed because they did use the S-word this week, right? Yeah, they did use the S-word this week. Uh, a couple articles came out. Brian Stress, uh, ESPN um, – uh, uh, Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated, they both sort of had some stuff that was out there uh, where they talked uh, to players and players said that if they didn't get free agency, uh, they're going to strike. So, um, look, this has caused the chicken little world of, of the uh, MLS bubble on social media to lose its collective mind. Uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about how a strike would, quote unquote, destroy the league. Um, you know, I, it's how it would completely mess up the momentum, blah, blah, blah. Look, no one is going to argue that, that a strike or a lockout, a work stoppage uh, will, uh, will be good uh, because clearly it's never good in any sport. But this idea that it would destroy the league is giving the league too little credit on how strong it is at this point in time. That there, No one is going to do some action that is going to ultimately destroy the league. Um, Kevin – you know, again, the players keep talking about free agency, and there's a disconnect between how fans, I think, view what free agency and what actually I think it is that they're looking for. I think when you hear uh, the term free agency, you think of what? You think of the NHL or the NBA or Major League Baseball or the NFL, right? You think of the big sports. And, well, no offense, MLS is still ways behind those sports. And you think about multi-million dollar contracts. And even on an MLS perspective, you think about Bradley coming back or Altador or whatever. Big money, right? Jovinko. What you don't think of is Eric Zavaleta. 
Eric Zavaleta was out of contract. Um, Seattle Sounders did not want him anymore. But because of the way the MLS rules work, he was still their property. TFC had to give uh, Seattle a second-round draft pick in order to sign him. And I believe that what the players are looking for as much has to do with Eric Zavaleta being able to move to another team when his previous team doesn't want him for the same salary. And that's it's not as much about about the big money signings. It's part of it. And I think there is an element of, of having like a guy that's played six years that wants to move home or, or what have you, because there's a, if they're, you're making middle class income or upper middle class income, as the case may be, you, you still you may want to be home host. Maybe you have a family, maybe you have a baby and you want to go close to grandma and grandpa. Right. Like there's lots of reasons that you might have a little bit more freedom of movement. Um, maybe your spouse has a great job back home that you want to go there too. There's lots of reasons why these guys want to have some freedom of movement after a few years. But ultimately, it's not so much about like trying to chase millions of dollars. It's trying to, to chase the ability to just to, to play what you want to do. Andrew Wiedemann signed with the Ottawa Fury this week. And part of the reason he had to – he maybe signed with the Ottawa Fury was because he didn't, he didn't have a flexibility um, to move – to any other city in, in, in North America or to in MLS, pardon me. So he, he went to a place where they didn't have to worry about his rights. And that's kind of the unique situation in North America. And maybe he had a reason to stay in Canada too. We don't know. Maybe Andrew Wiedemann, Canadian International. Who knows? It was um, easier for him to go to Ottawa just because he didn't have to, to think about that. It just signs with the Ottawa Fury, which is a single team, and it's done. I think it just goes to the single entity thing too, right, Dwayne? Because they're all the same owner anyway. So it's... I, you're right. I think just the players want to just have the freedom to not necessarily make more money by putting teams against each other. But if a team doesn't want you, at least you can have the freedom to maybe choose the other team where you can negotiate with instead of having a team need to give something to have a chance to talk to you and sign you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's a big part of it. And that's what the reentry draft in the last CBA in 2010 uh, was was partly addressed because for those that don't remember, and before 2010, and this is before the Whitecaps and and the impact coming in, uh, if any player uh, was at a contract, regardless of how long they had been in the league, their rights were held forever by the club that last held them. I mean, it was completely ridiculous. I remember um, I talked to a fellow, Nick Garcia, who, who Toronto fans will remember well. Uh, not so much outside of that. Maybe if you watched MLS before your team came in in Vancouver, Montreal, you might. But Garcia was a guy that clearly was at the end of things. Uh, he was the like one of the best players in the league in 2000. But by the time 2010 rolled around, he was at the end of his career. And he kind of wanted to play a little bit longer. And Toronto you know, just didn't have room for him. And he just didn't have the ability whatsoever to, to, to move without the, with the way the things were. So he was front and center to fighting... Uh, to get the reentry draft in, to get that half measure in. So, you know, the way the reentry draft works is if you meet a certain criteria, you're eligible to go in this draft, and then any other team in the league can then draft you. It's still controlled. It's still part, like, it still has the training wheels on in every way. It still doesn't allow more than one team to negotiate with them. And this is the great thing that MLS is trying to avoid in every way. They don't want to MLS teams out trying to outbid each other forcing salary up that's all about salary restraint every single thing they do is about salary restraint and that's why they're so resistant to free agency but in reality how many people are bidding for eric zavaleta how many one only only one i guess yeah in this particular case only one 
Uh, only one that was willing to give a second-round draft pick up anyway. And, and really, that's what it comes down to. You're just holding these players hostage and forcing them into the league in a lot of ways when you're talking about that level of player. The big-name guys are going to find a way. Like, Altidore got to where he wanted to go. So there's quasi-free agency for those big-name guys anyway. So when we're talking about it, we're talking about the middle-class guys and lower. And that's why I remain so strongly on the, the player's side. This is not about big money, Kevin. Uh, anyway, uh, the one couple other areas I want to explore, and, and you know, a lot of people will ask about the Canadian issue in this, and we've, uh, you know, from the draft, we heard that a lot of some speculation was going on pretty rampantly around the draft that there will be some kind of Canadian provision added. Nice. Um, I, I think that um, this ties into free agency in a lot of ways because I think the international spots ties into free agency, and, and one way that uh, one thing you might see if the players. Uh, really are demanding free agency after a contract, then I think what the owners may do is say, fine, we'll do that. We're going to eliminate the domestic quotas altogether, uh, which wouldn't necessarily have Canadian spots, but then would make Canadians domestics because there'd be no domestics, right? Yeah, true. Um, that would make it a full global market, which would then act as a way to sort of water down the salaries further because instead of competing in um, a domestic market, which is artificial by its nature because of the quota. You're eliminating that artificial aspect of it, and, and that would be a drag on salaries as well. So you might see a, a tick for tack like that uh, when you're talking about the negotiations here. Um, but I don't see the USSF or the C- – well, CSA has no say in it, but if they did, I don't see the USSF or CSA agreeing with that because they kind of need those quotas to have the amount of players they need to develop and to play in the – in a top flight level, no? Yeah, well, maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, there's no other league in North America that operates with quotas, uh, but obviously okay. they're the top leagues in the world, right? Like, you're talking with the NHL and that. Um, you know, you look at uh, the Mexican Federation, for instance. Uh, they have a quota on there, but they, they're reducing it. They're making it a little bit less strict than it was in the four. That's the movement in world football is away from them. Okay. Uh, however, you know, can – I think that in – in the U.S., that the U.S. program might be strong enough now that it doesn't really need it anymore and that there still would be teams that would naturally go towards Americans um, if they maintained a draft system in there, which I don't see any evidence that they're going away from, then obviously their players coming into your system are going to be American. If you maintain an academy system, then obviously those players are going to be um you know, Canadian or American, I would far rather see them move away from international quotas if they were going to. to, I don't mind the idea of scrapping them all together. Um, If they're not, then they need to address the Canadian thing absolutely, as we've said many times. But but if they're going to not do that, then fine, open it wide open because that does effectively make Canadians domestics, as I said. Um, However, what I would far rather see them move towards is something where each team is required to have X amount of homegrowns and it's particularly out of because that also in effect makes the the Canadians more you know makes a Canadian spot more valuable if each if each Canadian team had to have five home growings on their lineup at each time wow. something like that which is essentially what the Mexican system works is you have to have a certain amount of young young Mexicans in your lineup right I think that's and a it, great idea yeah then that forces you to do that sort of stuff we're a lot, this is another CBA way when we're talking with stuff like this I think True. though um another four or five years away but you know, I could see an addition, a couple additions to the international spots, so there's there's less American quota out there because it would just act as a drag, particularly if they uh, were uh, to open it up a bit. And I think that the players are pretty um, resolute in this. 
so they probably are going to open this up a little bit more. But I suspect what you'll see is some kind of compromise uh, where you um, it's easier to qualify for that reentry draft. That's what I expect will happen. That uh, that rather than have any provisions on how you get in there, just any player out of contract goes through the reentry system. That might be what happens in the end. It because, would be be more open in a way, and it'd be kind of like more transparent because the allocation process would be a little bit more open. So that would make sense too. Yeah, you know the the last thing we'll talk about in this, uh, I guess, is that you know, do we think that they'll strike? Um, mm. I actually think that the owners would be more likely to lock out before yes. the players strike because the players don't make enough money to really prolong make a prolonged. Like a prolonged time before they strike. So if these players were going to strike, in my mind, what would happen is that they would start the season and time a strike to have its most, its biggest effect, and that's why the owners would want to take that out, that power out of their hand. Because if you had the the play, if you play without a CBA, which you can, um, yep. and you get to, you get to August, you get to the playoff run when people are starting to get interested, people are starting to get excited. Maybe the Women's World Cup has increased some exposure as well out there. The players could then go, you know what, we want our free agency now, or we're going to pull it, and that the owners are just never going to let that happen. What the owners would do is, is I think that they would then lock out so that they then are basically taking the money out of the players' hand and trying to just just take the air away. I'm surprised of that they didn't do it at the beginning of the training camps because basically all the team has started their training camp this uh, this week or last week. So I'm surprised that they didn't do it because usually that's when they need to do it that it doesn't look as bad, uh, the public view, because it hasn't started yet. But in reality, it gives the players less time to prepare financially and to prepare to organize themselves for a strike because they didn't have time to actually start their meetups and start the season. They're still in vacation mode. So I'm surprised that it didn't happen last week or usually that's a tactic that you saw in the NHL or other organization. Just before training camp, you lock out so that way you take basically all the power away from the player side of things. Yeah, I believe that that might have something to do with the CCL and there being a, and I've heard this set out, right, that there's an unspoken agreement between the players and the owners to not strike or lock out because uh, they're out of contract now. They're, they're without a CBA at the, at the end of this month, actually, so not quite yet. But, um, a couple days. Yeah, it's so basically they can't lock out until, <laughs> until next week. But uh, there is, I have heard uh, that, that they have an agreement in place, like a handshake agreement, to not do it before the end of the of the CCL games until the all the teams are out of the CCL because they they just don't want to put the teams in the position where they'd have to forfeit a game in there, which might be what would happen. I mean, it, just think about it: if Montreal went into the CCL game without any of its MLS players, what would they play the Academy against Pachuca? Yeah, that would be yeah no. Yeah, that, that's <laughs> and that'd be all you'd be left to, you know, the Trobriere attack, <laughs> so to uh. speak. The academy play against Pachuca, twenty-eight nothing on aggregate. Yeah, no, it might not be pretty. So I think that there is that kind of uh, uh, thinking out there. Um, lots of time to talk about this. Uh, as I said, this is going to run up. Uh, this is going to run out in the next couple of days. Um, I think that ultimately it will get solved, but it's going to come down to the wire. I, I think it's absolutely they're going to play a game of chicken, and it's going to come down to the wire, Kevin. Absolutely, and unfortunately, I think you're right. Just the fact that. The divide between two sides, uh, just on the power level, the power scale, the fact that it's millionaires and billionaires, or more millionaires in the world of MLS, but it's those huge owners against the David, against the small players that 
on the big scale of thing, the average of salary, Dwayne, if I'm not mistaken, is surrounding 100,000, if not lower than that in the whole league, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's gone up, but uh, it certainly is still not something where anyone's getting rich. So All it's right. still not the same power for the players. So the the threshold of when you not necessarily cave in, but when you agree for your own for the better of yourself, for your own financial reason, when you start to say, ah, finally, okay, I accept it, is a lot lower than when it is for an NHL or NFL player. So, yeah. Absolutely. All right. Let's take a quick break. Come back. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the grassroots in Canada and the debate that has flared up around that in recent days. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast. On Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramay. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio. And welcome back. And the fallout to the U-20s continues, although uh, although a lot of people would be upset with me if I said the U-20s because they'll say that the top does not get fixed without fixing the bottom first, which is the essence of our conversation. Now, um, I'm, of course, talking about uh, grassroots problems in Canada that have existed for many years, uh, this idea that uh, we don't have a system that's pulling in the same direction, and that ultimately results in us just simply not producing enough good players. Jason DeVos, writing for TSN, uh, wrote an article this week that had a lot of people talking where he said that uh, Canadian soccer is just never going to get better because no one cares. Um, Let's start there. Kevin, do you think no one cares? I think some people care, but the amount of people that care, I think, is not enough to make those change that we would love to see take effect at the grassroots level. Though, on the top, but it at the top of the top flight, we'll see those changes, but it'll never be deep enough that the effects of those changes can be seen. Yeah, you know, yes and no. Um, you're right, there, and Jason's right that there is there aren't enough people that really truly are passionate. But at the same time, there are a lot of people that are passionate about it, and and you only need a few to to affect change. And I bring it back, and I hate to belabor the point if you listen to our other podcast, Five Rings, you'll know that we talk about Tennis Canada a lot. Uh, we talked about the changes like even the Rugby Women's Program, um, Basketball Canada. We, we talk about all these, these uh, on the podium, like these things that are happening in Canadian sport that have had major effect. Now, soccer's a bigger animal than those. Uh, certainly, you know, soccer's a different kind of idea than, than, than tennis for sure. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. When you look at the Tennis Canada, and look, let's talk about them for a second. Let's, let's pinpoint them. Yeah. Tennis Canada isn't about two players. This isn't what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the fact that Eugene Bouchard is in the quarterfinals of uh, the Australian Opens, or that uh, Milos Raonic has, has gone to quite a few quarterfinals now as well. I'm not talking about that. That's certainly the the ultimate expression of it. But if you look at Tennis Canada, you have players that are going high and deep into junior level rankings at the at the majors now too. You have a tennis center that has been completely centralized the operations. There's a long term player development, a long term athlete development. They would say at that level that that has been completely uh, the entire focus at every level. They have these junior programs that have come in that are very science focused into how you you expose very young kids, like under 10 kids to the game. They have 
uh, tennis clubs across the country are all pulling in the same way to find and produce more players. And even if they don't produce elite players, at least people, a love of the game and uh, an appreciation of the game and, and have the right skills to play the game late into life. Like that's happening in every level in the tennis in this country right now. And it's because a couple well, a couple years ago, but a decade ago, someone looked in the mirror and went, we we're a mess and we need to fix ourselves and we need to actually start being athlete focused rather than than stupid politics focused and they made the changes even though no one and I say no one in a obviously there was someone but very few people in the same way that that no one cares about tennis or that soccer in the same way that no one cares about soccer now no one cared about tennis then but yet they made the changes so this idea that we're just you know, throw our hands up which is kind of what I get sometimes about these articles it's ridiculous you just need to find the person with passion and put him at the right place so they can affect those changes, I guess, right? So yeah. we need to find that uh, that one person that's willing to sacrifice, not necessarily his reputation, but that's willing to fail with a program to be able to change it. Sometimes we're so afraid not to mess things up more, more or further that we don't benefit things in the long run. You need to be able to fail to succeed. Yeah, well, and you have to... Yeah, you have to get pulling in the same directions. You have to have, have strong-willed leadership that, that's willing to get the vision out there and explain the vision and defend the vision and fight against those that are going to, going to resist it because whenever there's change, there's going to be a resistance to the change because people are just – they're set in their ways. Humans are human beings, Dwayne. For them to admit that they made the mistake, it's something huge to do that. And when you want to do change, it's basically what you're doing. You admit that you made mistakes in the past and that is hard to do. Yeah, and when it comes to soccer in this country, everyone understands that we're terrible. Um, everyone can be worse, but, really. Yeah, but no one is willing to admit that they're the reason why we're terrible, right? Like you oh, always have, yeah. we're terrible, but it's because those people there are idiots. That's kind of the prevailing attitude you get in Canadian soccer. We're awful here in Ontario, but it's only because those bastards in BC pull us down. And then in BC, you have those idiots in central Canada. They don't know what the hell they're doing, and they're trying to dictate us, and that's why we suck. No, we all suck because none of us will talk together. None of us talked. None of us listened to each other. We just fight. That's all that happens in this system from top to bottom is everyone just fights with each other. Um, anyway. So basically, Dwayne, you and I will get a big truck. We'll gather all the president of the soccer association of the province, lock him up in a room, and don't let him out until they agree that we need a program that's a pyramid from top to bottom that's pulling in the same direction, technically, tactically, and fitness for the athletes. Yeah, that would be a good start. But unfortunately, what would happen then is that these presidents would put that out to their, their members at the grassroots. And then you'd have people at the grassroots that would go, what the hell are they talking about? Like, why? Like, you look at the long-term player development plant rollout. I mean, it's, it's based on sports science. And it will work if it's allowed to go in there. And there have been changes that have been going on for a while. But they, <laughs> they just – they will resist them on every level. So you, you just – you need someone there to fight for it. Does the fact that soccer is the most played recreational sport in Canada actually impeding on the top flight of soccer in Canada because you don't get the people realizing there's a problem because they're just thinking, yeah, he just plays once a week to stretch his leg or to have fun. It's nothing more than that. So why would we uh, put more thought into it? It's just there to do that. Yeah, well, it's certainly uh, the amount of recreation and the, and the form that recreation programs take. Um, in this country, do have a drag down on it, and and this, and, and I think that this is an area that the elite people that the that advocate for 
a greater uh, elite development focus need to also understand is that there's different needs between the elite level and the recreation level. I think when you have uh, kids that are playing once a week and, and then you're having you know us pinheads tell them that they can't keep scoring their games and stuff like that, I get why you get resistance to that because that's just what they're used to use sport being about going out and playing in a house league and, and having some fun trying to win some games here and there and that's just the essence of sport to people. So if you allow a certain flexibility in terms of understanding that there are certain types of kids out there that just want to play in, in a, an environment that's more house league focused, more game focused, but you have an elite development, a stream that's going off and you're identifying them at a, at a young enough age that you're making a difference, but an old enough age that you're allowing you know, the development to happen naturally below that, then I think you get the, the best of both worlds. Um, it, it's a complicated story that we've been talking about and I think that the thing where I want to end this right now before I move on with a little bit of uh, Ontario League One talk, talking about the development period um, – is it's not all bad either, though, and I think that's the biggest thing that I I want to stress. And what I wrote about in re- reaction to Jason's piece is that that yes, there's a lot of problems, and yes, we need to fix the we need someone out there that's abdicating and trying to to sell the development programs to the grassroots, and this is working with the grassroots at all the time to implement these programs. But at the same time, not everything right now is going wrong. You look at Sigma Academy producing three of the top or two of the top eleven players in the draft. You look at that. And, and you have to understand that at least they're doing something right. And you try and sell these these good stories and show them the model. And I know for firsthand that Sigma is using a long-term player development model, which is based on the SAC uh, academies here in Ontario and it's part of that system. You look at that and you point to it and go, see, this is the success. This is how it works. Right here is what will happen if you do this. Ultimately, not every program is going to be as successful as, as, um, as Sigma, but it, some might be. And you just need to, to get those good stories out there because right now we're just completely inundated with the crap, right? Yep, you're absolutely right. There is a ACP in Montreal, in Quebec, that is actually having a lot of success internationally in tournaments that they go to. And it's the same basis, standard base, development, skills base. It's achievements. You need to get to this point, to this point. It's, I think it's the key. And I think those fences need to be mended between the CSA and the academies. One of the other side needs to agree with the other because it, it almost comes out to that. It's a battle between the two philosophies. And I think for the better of the country, in a way, that those philosophies need to merge in some sort. Yeah. All right. Um, let's, let's end the podcast with a little bit of uh, U.S. or sorry, U.S. I keep calling it U.S.L. It's too many acronyms, Kevin. Too many acronyms. Uh, L1O, a- League One Ontario. Yeah, a little bit of uh, Ontario League One uh, stuff, uh, which... We talk a bit about the PDL story that's going on with that as well right now that I've been reporting on with CSN. Um, Ontario League One is going into its second year right now. Uh, they uh, look like they're going to expand. In fact, I've received well, – like I think they've officially put it out on their Twitter feed, but I'd heard it last week that there will be 12 teams operating in Ontario League One next year. I have it on pretty good authority that one of those 12 things is going to be Oakville. Uh, Oakville, I think, is, a, is an important symbolic victory to to get out there. It being the the biggest um, rec soccer program in the country. So we just talked about that a minute ago. So they, this is a, a a club, Oakville Soccer Club, that that has does everything on that recreation level that we talked about. But they're also recognizing the importance to have an elite element and have an elite stream and a top of that elite pyramid. Um, if, if in fact this comes true, I think it's great news that Oakville is going to be part of Ontario League One next year. Jason DeVos' stomping ground, where he used to be the technical director of the Oakville Soccer Association. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm not entirely 100% sure on exactly how the Oakville thing is going to work, whether it's going to be a merging situation like we saw in Durham um, where you had a couple clubs come together to create Durham United or whether it's just going to be um, a senior team at the top of their level. Uh, that announcement is probably coming later this week, so we'll let them uh, do more than that. There's going to be another uh, two teams out there. I've heard uh, the one's probably going to be uh, not necessarily in the GTA. Uh, I'd heard suggestions that maybe Hamilton, Niagara, down that way. I don't know what club for sure it is, but uh, but certainly I've heard that. Um, I'm not. I haven't heard much on where the other one is. Um, it might be a Toronto-based club as well, like in the proper city of Toronto. That is actually. Uh, when uh, International de Toronto uh, folded last year or was ceased operations last year, that uh, that made uh, made it a case where there weren't any teams operating actually within the city of Toronto. They were all peripheral. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry, I guess Masters might have been in Scarborough, come to think of it. But however, there was none really in the core. Uh, so that might be addressed. I've heard that. Uh, maybe even a, a, a name that uh, that people are familiar with from the past might be involved in that one. So I've heard that. But the other important development on the League One uh, side of things is that uh, it has been confirmed now that they, there will be a women's league. Um, they're looking probably at six teams next year, um, which I think is a great start. I, I, I'd like to triple that <laughs> eventually, but six six elite women's teams uh, to start, I think, are an absolute uh, key thing right now six more than it used to be it's great right league one just started their women and last year was a yes it was a goal of them but it never went out and announced i remember when we had dino on the show when you interviewed him in the press conference of uh, the league one he was yes he said maybe he said they'll look into it and a year later okay we have six teams of women not bad all right. Um, right now, I'm also. Uh, this is very the end, and we'll have to address this later. It is, appears that the Zerberto uh, transfer uh, is done, uh, 99% done, according to uh, a gentleman uh, that's involved with the community, Joey something. I don't want to butcher that name right now. I just saw it. Um, he's going back to Brazil. It appears to be. He's an MLS writer. Is, uh, is reporting this, so it's 99% done, as we're hearing from an MLS writer. Uh, based on the, uh, that Gilberto has been transferred back. Uh, so that so that's, uh, you know, not surprising. We'd heard that. Um, I actually was the first to report that Gilberto was not going to come back to TFC last fall. Uh, so, you know, uh, once again, we're, we're correct on that front. But uh, um, TFC so fans... It's a, do you, does that set the way for Javinko to come early? Um, I, it would certainly make it possible because they'd be down to two DPs. Yeah. Uh, I don't know whether that is tied in. Um, it could be what we're hearing is he's been training um, at uh, Vasco is the, the club in Brazil where he's training. Uh, and that's likely where he's going, going back to the Brazilian league. Uh, you know, look, he scored seven goals last year. We all felt that there was a good chance that he would adjust and have a good breakout year. I don't think we're ever going to find out now by the sound of it if he's going back to Brazil. But uh you know, it is a case where the guy didn't score 15 goals last year, so you have to kind of move on. And if this is the money he's going to allow uh, this movement to come in, then then it is what it is. There certainly are going to be people that are upset about this in Toronto. Uh, there will be people that don't care about this in Toronto, but it's early days right now. This is just breaking as uh, as I'm talking now, so I'm just trying to get my thoughts as we speak. And until uh, next week, now or maybe later this week, if there's anything that come up, Dwayne, we'll probably do a special show like we always do. But until then, Dwayne, have a great soccer. <laughs>